Friends, please be seated. In the summer of 2015, I, I led a team of, of young people and adults uh, who were working in partnership with the community center in Dunlow, West Virginia, to host a vacation Bible school program for children uh, in that small former coal mining town. Uh, and of course, there was also various projects that were done around the community at the time uh, with the center uh, and also with uh, many of the teenagers that were living there in that, uh, what I could say is a depressed community uh, with the mine having closed, a lot of jobs went with it. As part of the team's preparation, uh, we held what we called consecration uh, on the night before the projects began, uh, and this is what it entailed. We had all the students line up and all the uh, leaders, they all lined up in single file in a small chapel of a church that we were uh, staying in. And they came one by one with their hands palm side up like this, and they came forward to the front of that space. We applied oil to their forehead as a, as a mark. The Holy Spirit was with them. And then in one hand, we placed salt, and the other, we placed a candle to remind them of who they were and what they were about to be or what they were to be up to. They were consecrated for service, and possibly for the first time in their lives, something like that had happened before they set out in those type of projects. But even more so, they were reminded of their calling. The imagery here of salt and light, uh, like the Beatitudes that precede them, point to how the lives of Jesus' followers are to take shape in the world. But before we run off and try to find the latest spiritual salination process uh, to put ourselves under, or maybe even to increase our own personal lumens, uh, we need to breathe. Take a breath. Pause for a second. The very same Jesus followers being addressed uh, here were also addressed earlier in the chapter. So these same people who are being called salt of the earth and light of the world are the same folks that are being categorized or identified in the Beatitudes that preceded this. We might say that these new categories that we have here, these new metaphors, talk about what you get when you follow Jesus, or maybe more importantly, who you are. Emerson Powery echoes this nod to Christian identity when he observes, who are the salt of the earth? They are the humble, the ones who mourn, the meek, and those who thirst after doing what is right in the world. Who are the light? They are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and those who receive abuse for standing up for what is right. Jesus does, of course, speak of salt elsewhere in the Gospels. We see that in such places as Mark chapter 9 and Luke 14, for instance. But much like our text, each time salt is referenced, it's always brief. It's with brevity. Even in our text here, we see that brevity, but the context each time remains the same. We see that each time salt shows up in the Gospels, as we've observed, being salt correlates to how the lives of Jesus' followers are to take shape in the world. That shows up over and over again with these salt references. And not some kind of insular way of how we're to be. Jesus is not at this point setting up a monastic community uh, that's set within its own uh, self-existence, its own purposes. Instead, and much like actual salt, and the metaphor of light that comes later, there's an effect on the surrounding environment, or at least there's supposed to be one. It's a point that Jesus seems to be getting at with all of this, that his followers will have an effect on the world around. Of course, we can look at news headlines about churches and, and different religious leaders, and maybe even our own lives, 
and see places where we've had an effect on the world around, but maybe not the effect we should be having. Jesus is talking about a different kind of effect here. Of course, to ensure that this point won't be lost on his audience, Jesus comes right out and says as much in verse 16, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. In other words, if you are a salty Christian, all right, so if you're a salty Christian uh, and you're having no kingdom positive effect on your surrounding environment, you might be the wrong kind of salty, all right? You can, I think there's a t-shirt I saw at the mall that talks about being a salty. You can need to see the t-shirt to see what the rest is. But that's not the way that Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about that kind of salty. Eugene Peterson may have captured the saltiness that Jesus' followers are called to with this question uh, in the message when he writes, if you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste your godliness? And that's a particular function of the Christian life and certainly a key role for the Jesus community. But to be this means that Jesus, Jesus followers won't be that, right? If you're going to be this, and you can insert any kind of expression, life expression here that lies in contrast to God's instruction, there's a lot of things on that, that list that it won't entail. You can't be unjust. You can't be an oppressor. You can't be mean. Right? You can't be not generous. You can't be unkind. Of course, we look at our lives and say there's many places where we've been that. We've done that. And that's the wrong kind of salty again. The uncommon life of faithfulness we so often pray together at the communion table, that's what we're being called to. And we know in scripture we hear words like pilgrims and aliens and strangers as reference to this life of faith. In fact, Philippians 2.15 illuminates this for us when we read, Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in which you shine like stars in the world. You can see the contrast there right away. And there's definitely a contrast. But we want to be careful again not to read this contrast as though it promotes isolation or insulation or even, we said earlier, insular kind of talk. And note all the eyes in there. There's a lot of eye talk we have. No, this contrast is set up against the backdrop of its stated purpose that the world will see. They'll see. They'll see uh, justice and faith enact it and respond appropriately that this, the world will come to that place, that source for justice, uh, come and join in worship. Or in turning to Peterson once more and, and following Jesus' imagery of light now, far from being an enclave unto ourselves, shine. That's what Peterson writes. Shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven. Now that all sounds good and easy. Say shine. I was in a race one time, the shine race. It was like 5K and they threw glitter on you. You were shining afterwards, and my car was shining for a couple of years after that when the glitter got on it. That's an easy kind of shine. But when we come across a Jesus community like the one in Corinth, who seems to have gotten things all mixed up, we realize it's not as easy as we sometimes try to make it out to be. The message, of course, for them sat second to technique and style. Persuasive words of, of wisdom, of course. The focus becomes the messenger at that point over our Father in heaven. The gifts become outsized, all the while the giver becomes undervalued. And all this happened within a Jesus community. And so we have the example of Corinth to remind us that we can become that 
and that we can very often slip into those places. This past week, in fact, I saw a rather strange thing, and I don't know how strange your week was, but this was the strangest thing I think I saw all week long. I saw a young person walking down First Avenue with an adult, could easily have been, based on their ages, a mother and her son walking down the, the sidewalk. But what caught my eyes being rather strange was the young person had a large fir tree branch draped across his shoulders, and I mean a large branch, draping across his shoulders while he was kicking a wig down the street. That's strange, right? That would catch your eye. So I decided to watch a little bit more and see what was happening. Like, what, what, what happened here? What, what is this? Eventually, he kicked the wig into some bushes, and they walked on as though everything was normal. That was all unusual to me. And like I said, strange. So what's the strangest thing you saw this, this last week? Jesus will top any of our stories. When he says that something that's even stranger is salt that's lost its saltiness. You can kick a wig down the street, but that's not as strange as salt that loses its saltiness. Carry your branch to and fro. That's not as strange as hidden light that cannot be seen. Jesus identifies these two places as being strange. But more than strange, as R.T. France will say in observing his commentary, what Jesus clearly knew. A secret disciple, a.k.a. hidden light, is no more use in the world than one who has lost his distinctiveness, unsalty salt. Just how impractical and ineffective can be seen in the choice of words that Jesus uses here. The word translated in verse 13 for lost its taste means to become foolish. It literally means that, become foolish. In fact, the same Greek word that we have here is the word that we derive our English word moron from. Right, foolish. Salt that becomes foolish sounds a bit odd, though it probably doesn't sound as odd when you've tried unsalty salt on your food and you realize that's foolish. It's just adding grit. There's no real flavor there. Of course, rabbis of old used salt as a metaphor for wisdom in their writings. I was reading one this past week uh, from an ancient uh, rabbinic source. It was a very strange verse. If you want to know it, reach out to me. I'll send it to you. But it's very strange. But it makes this point. But we see this as well as uh, the places where it's picked up in our own uh, scriptures. We see in Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, right? so that you may know how you ought to answer everyone. So there's where wisdom and salt, that metaphor, shows up. The opposite of wisdom, of course, being foolishness. One can see how foolish and unsalty became associated in word choices here. But as great as the challenge of living into this Christ-given identity of salt and light, there's another obstacle Jesus identifies beyond unsalty living that impedes our witness and our efforts. And our gospel reading is described as the bushel basket, right? The bushel basket. But quite frankly, it could be any number of things that would impede the light of Jesus in the Jesus community or in the life of a Jesus follower. Of course, this particular idea is introduced by Amy Oden uh, in her commentary on the passage where she observes that Jesus describes a light not snuffed out, but covered up. The light is not extinguished. It's simply rendered ineffective. Oden will go on to invite readers to consider what bushels cover their congregation's light. I was reading this this week, and I was like, oh boy, here we go. Should I tell this one to the congregation? Should we go any further? She identifies a few possibilities in her writings. She says, maybe the bushel is an inferiority complex. 
a lack of confidence that comes from chronically comparing ourselves to the big church across town or to the good old days when our church was full of children and youth. The inferiority bushel blocks out God's light. She goes on the right, or perhaps the bushel is the self-absorption of internal conflicts. While conflict is an expected part of any human organization, when conflict becomes an excuse for unproductive institutional self-absorption, then there's a bushel that prevents our light from shining. She goes on. <laughs> or perhaps the bushel is the fantasy church in our minds. This sort of bushel is seductive because it seems so positive and feels so good. Such holy longing for an imagined future can indeed fuel us. However, it is equally likely that we indulge in lots of incantational speech without any concrete action or effort in the present. Our church fantasies can leave us unable to build a common life with the real people around us. Magical thinking covers our light. Of course, Odin will go on to offer uh, some hope here when she says this. Jesus is clear we are not victims inevitably doomed to being distracted and drained by the bushels of inferiority or self-absorption or fantasy. Bushels can only block out the light when we put them there. But it is a good question for us to ask what bushels we might be using to cover our own light or even as a community to consider and ponder that, knowing that they stand in the way. And Jesus is not naive or ignorant to the fact that Christian communities in the future and his disciples would face such challenges. So he names them. He names it right from the get-go. These same bushels, though, can be removed, and new ones can be avoided, and even removed as well, should they take up residence. But if you're looking for even more hope, there is more hope. You're feeling, wow, that's a real downer, Jimmy. Can I get some more hope? There's some good news for you here. The one who gives light, the one who's illuminated the community, who's given disciples and Jesus followers of all ages a light to shine, that same one we read in John chapter 1, verse 5, that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overtake it, and still has not overtaken it. So my salty friends, all of you, here in the room and online, let your light shine before others. Let your light shine before others. But first, a modern-day Corinthian caution. I hope you had a chance this last week to read uh, Tish Harrison Warren's op-ed from late last month. It was in the New York Times. It was entitled, The Temptations of P the Personal Brand. Uh, I hope you had a chance to read it. If you didn't have a chance, uh, you'll want to take a look at that. It's, it's uh, very insightful. And not only is as challenging as it is, it is informative. But Warren observes here, uh, faith also challenges us to exist for something higher than ourselves. And she's, she's, what she's doing is she's writing against a culture, uh, and the, the culture is not them versus us kind of culture but the culture that exists within our own culture in our own society in our own thinking here in the western world particularly when we think about social media and the way that we present ourselves online uh, there's a there's a, a drive to make ourselves into a brand a marketable brand and churches fall into this as well and and, and christian leaders uh, and even uh, members of congregations fall into the same trap that we need to create some sort of branding of ourselves and that we have to service that brand but she says faith also challenges us to exist for something higher than ourselves. A faithful understanding of vocation calls us to the common good. Jesus even spoke in the stark terms of dying to self. A modern paraphrase of his teaching might be, what good is it for a person, even a congressperson, that's the example she uses, if he gains tens of thousands of followers, but loses his soul? Loses his soul. 
Salt and light are not personal brands. Becoming salt and light, that's, we're not talking about branding on the internet or anything like that with these. But they are powerful even in weakness. If you watched the wedding a few years ago of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, uh, you may recall that as they were coming down the steps out of St. George's Chapel to board that horse-drawn carriage, that there was a gospel choir that was in place, and the gospel choir began to sing uh, a song that was an arrangement of two familiar songs, that song, Amen, uh, and then they broke into this little light of mine. Let me see that. Do you remember that part? They break into that. It wasn't the first time that these two songs, of course, had been married together in an arrangement. In fact, Sam Cooke recorded a similar arrangement at the Copacabana in July 1964. <laughs> I listened to it about seven times this week. It's great. So you want to take a listen to that. And though the origin of the, this, the latter spiritual, this light of mine, is unknown, its lyrics are quite familiar. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. But the song is more than familiar. It's actually powerful, both in composition, the lyrics and the song itself, and the energy that emanates within crowds singing it together, even when they improvise on the lyrics. And that's, there's, you can see just tons and tons of different variations of the lyrics. And this power speaks to why in the 1950s and 60s, the music was an important tool employed in the civil rights movement with this little light of mine serving as a key entry into that Psalter. Ruth Mae Harris, a member of the Freedom Singers, notes this about the power of music during that time. She says, music was an anchor, kept us from being afraid. You start singing a song and somehow those billy clubs would not hit you. It played a very important role in the movement. But not just limited to the 50s and the 60s, that now infamous August 2017 Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, where neo-fascists and white supremacists marched openly in the streets and clashed violently with the counter-protesters, one of the leaders of the counter-protest, the Reverend Asagiefo Sekou, uh, shared, we had originally said we were going to stand silently, but the Nazis were marching past us in these various battalions, cursing and yelling, mostly homophobic slurs at us, and you could feel the energy of the people who weren't with us, who we had not trained. They were getting amped up. So I just broke into this little light of mine. The tensions went down, and it shook the Nazis. They didn't know what to do with all that joy. We were going to let the darkness have the last word. I think that's an important thing for us to hear as we conclude this morning. When we live out and we become those people who are the salt of the earth, those who let our light shine out, we do more than simply live lives of trusting obedience in the one who has called us and has faithfully granted to us the gift of light and saltiness, who has graciously gifted us a wisdom that goes far beyond our own understanding. But we become agents and people who don't let the darkness have the last word. So friends, this little light of ours, let it shine. That is who we are. That, as the gospel goes forth to all the world, as God's reign invites enactments of charity and justice, of generosity and redeeming and restoring love, darkness will not be the first thing the world sees, nor will it have that final word.